I grew up in Listowel, a small town of close to 5,000 people in North Kerry, in the southwest of Ireland. The town and its hinterland have a literary heritage renowned for its writers, playwrights, poets, and balladeers. My late father, John B. Keane, played a part in that. But there was one particular story that was almost lost. Two, please. Had you booked? No. Oh, you silly people. My name is Connor Keane. This evening, I'm at the opening night of the Lantique Theatre Company's latest production, Solo Run, in St John's Theatre and Arts Centre in Listowel. Rehearsals began in December, and now it's the first week in April of 2018. Written by local playwright Tony Gairn, this play was inspired by the story that I'm about to tell. The origins of tonight's play stem from February 1946, when Lestole's parish priest, Canon Patrick Brennan, was challenged by his parishioners in an unprecedented act of public defiance. Yeah, but, but they were all afraid of priests, but they, they, they just took that little bit too far, you know, because no one, no one would put up with this. The parishioners forced Canon Brennan to appease his flock for the one and only time in his 11-year reign in the parish. It was respectable what happened. If it was anyone else, it would be the same thing, you know. Their defiance arose from the treatment of 25-year-old Peggy McCarthy, a young old woman who died when she shouldn't have more than 70 years ago. The Ireland of 1946 was a very different place to today. World War II was just over, but rationing was still in place. Ireland was in its infancy as a republic, and here in Listowel, like much of the country, most families lived a hand-to-mouth existence. Perhaps the most significant difference was a societal one. Back then, the Catholic Church was all-powerful. Clergymen such as Canon Brennan were simply not challenged. Yet, that's precisely what happened when Peggy McCarthy died in 1946, at a time when it was unheard of for members of the laity to challenge the church in any way. Bat O'Keefe knows Peggy's story well. He played the role of Canon Brennan in the first production of Solo Run in 2002. It was a frightening, uh, I suppose, part of our history at that time. We are standing in Listowel's main square, just yards from where the face-off between Canon Brennan and his parishioners took place. The church had too much power. Uh, they wielded it in a way which kept the people down. The people weren't educated enough. A lot of the things that happened that time, I say, were basically uh, the people were just terrified of the priests, the schoolmasters, and probably the guards in that order. And the schoolmaster was terrified of the priest. <laughs> so the priest was the top dog. Because I saw people here in the early 50s kneeling down in the, in the gutter at a, on a fair day, blessing themselves when that very cannon passed them by. I saw farmers kneeling down in the kodum and blessing themselves, morning cannon. That makes it all the more remarkable that it, he was held in such esteem. He was, fear. yeah, fear. And that, and, 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 then, and then a local hackney driver mm-hmm. had the gumption to, to yeah. force him into doing he, the right thing. He, he had, yeah, and uh, he was, a, uh, I suppose, a man apart, uh, the hackney driver, Jerry Gairn. Uh, he was ahead of his time, like, with regard to, you know, what, what was right and what was wrong. The hackney driver, John Gairn, 
that Bat talks about played a crucial part in Peggy McCarthy's story. He came to her aid in life and in death, leading the townspeople to revolt against the church for what happened to her after she died. Peggy came from a family of ten from the outskirts of Listowel. Born in 1921, she saw the majority of her siblings immigrate to the UK and the USA. Some never saw her again after they departed. A brother, Sean McCarthy, just two years younger than Peggy, became a well-known songwriter later in life. Over the years, Sean appeared on radio and TV programmes. In 1988, he spoke briefly of their childhoods. I was born about a mile and a half from here, uh, crossing Sanders' Bog, at the edge of Sanders' Bog. Matter of fact, I used to say that the McCarthy's were the cleanest family in Ireland. Because if you went out the back door, you fell into a bog hole. And if you went out the front door, you fell into a bog hole. But uh, in the, where I live now in Sanders' Bog, times are very hard. I mean, not just talking about times are hard. People have no idea. Where you had the, not like now, you had this gnawing hunger most of the time because we had ten in family to feed now. And very, very little coming in. I, I had, we, we couldn't afford cows. I had three goats. I mean, we had three and a half miles to walk to school. And there was no road, it was a cow track. And in the winter weather, especially when the floods came, you could swim to school. Unlike her brothers and sisters, Peggy chose to stay at home in Lestole, working as a domestic servant with local farming families. Despite life being tough in the 1940s, there were some social outlets for young people. Just a mile from Peggy's home was a dance hall. Her brother Sean remembered it vividly in an RTE radio interview. The dance hall back here, it was uh, sixpence to go in. And in the house at the back of me here, they used to hold the, the supper dances, the dinner dances, they used to call them. A half a count there and you'd get a bread and butter and uh, a bit of pandy maybe. And if you were lucky, a crew bean or a bit of bacon and cabbage. And the dance thing would go on until about five o'clock in the morning. And this field across here was the courting field. And they say that uh, it was responsible for many a man getting the boat for Hollyhead in the morning at that field out there. Seventy years on, we can only assume that Peggy attended these local dances. Then, during the summer of 1945, Peggy became pregnant. Father Martin Hegarty, a friend of the McCarthy family, remembers Peggy coming to their door in late 1945 seeking a favour. When she was pregnant, uh, she came to my house um, late at night asking me for the loan of the pony and trap so that she could go to a certain area in North Kerry to meet her boyfriend who was home from England at the time. The man who fathered Peggy's child is said to have immigrated to the UK in search of work to support his girlfriend Peggy and their unborn baby. He was never heard of again. Our first uh, speaker is Ned O'Sullivan, and you have eight minutes. I'd like to welcome to the house, uh, Minister to the House, Cahillic. And uh, on the 10th of February 1946, Peggy McCarthy went into labour at her home on the outskirts of Listowel, with her mother and a local midwife by her side. The treatment of young mothers and their young children defies belief. Last year, Senator Ned O'Sullivan made a speech in the Shannon as they were debating what happened in what's now become known 
as the Chum baby scandal. In his remarks, Ned details what happened next to Peggy. Cahillic, in February 1946, in a small cottage at the edge of my hometown in North Kerry, a young single girl... In the advanced stages of labour, Peggy needed to get medical help and fast. The Stoll Hospital was less than a mile from her home, but at this stage she couldn't walk. Complications set in and immediate medical help was required. A local hackney man by the name of John Gairn was sent for and he brought the seriously ill girl to the local hospital less than a mile from her home. She was refused admittance. Tony Gairn is the Lestol playwright who wrote the play Solo Run based on Peggy's story. It was his father John who was driving the hackney cab in which Peggy was travelling in on that night back in February 1946. It was my father that had her in the cab and very much distressed. This wasn't just an unmarried pregnant girl. This was a crisis pregnancy that without immediate medical attention, Peggy McCarthy would die. It's difficult to make sense of it all today, refusing to hospitalise a seriously ill woman solely because the child about to be born was conceived out of wedlock. But that's precisely what happened to 25-year-old Peggy. And these weren't just the church teachings, this was decreed by the state too. Even in the face of impending death for both mother and child, morals had to be upheld. The person who refused her then, uh, her admittance, was uh, a nun employed by the uh, Kerry County Council who looked after the uh, medical matters in Kerry. The only rule, the only rule, and she was following uh, regulations that uh, she couldn't accept the mother because she, she w- was an unmarried mother, whereas she could accept any other mother who was married. And uh, the poor girl must have been getting sick at the time because the driver was worried about her, and the driver said, we'll chance Tralee, maybe they'll take us in there. She was directed to the county hospital in Tralee, which was an agonising journey for her of 20 miles. In 1946, the journey by motor car between Listowel and Tralee would have taken 40 to 50 minutes as Peggy agonised in labour in the back of John Gairn's hackney cab as he drove as fast as both he and the roads allowed. It's clear that John Gairn knew he was fighting for Peggy's life and the life of her unborn child. When she was refused there, they were directed to Tralee Hospital, General Hospital there, and Peggy, in distress, and God only knows the agony, was too great to try to express in words. On arrival at St. Catherine's Hospital in Tralee, Father Hegarty details what happened next to Peggy. Now, into St. Catherine's to be met with another nun who repeated the same rule that on no account can we accept uh, Peggy into our maternity ward because of the rule of the county council. Here again, although she was at death's door, she was refused admittance and redirected to the Union in Killarney, which was a further 20 miles away and which was considered to be a more suitable place for her equals. Tony has since encountered the nun who refused Peggy admittance to Tralee Hospital that night. In an Ireland where so many people live their lives under the rule of church and state, this particular nun would never forget Peggy, nor that she was forced to close the door of the hospital to both her and her unborn child. The nun that refused her entrance in St Catherine's Hospital in Tralee, I know to be an Arkerry nun, 
and she was terribly distressed at having to refuse Peggy McCarthy into her hospital. And I know for a fact it affected her all her life that she had to carry out the instructions of her superiors and uh, she regretted it always because she knew she was sending that girl to her death. Having been refused entry to Trilly Hospital, Tony's father, John Gairn, raced to the county hospital in Killarney, another 20-mile journey of up to an hour. It wasn't to be John's final journey with Peggy on board. Whether Peggy actually reached the hospital in Killarney before giving birth is, at this remove, unclear. Some say that Peggy gave birth at the side of the road en route to Killarney. More say John Gairn lifted her into the county hospital before she didn't give birth. But what is unambiguous is that Peggy died shortly after giving birth to a beautiful baby girl. Peggy's death certificate states that on Sunday, the 10th of February 1946, at the County Hospital in Killarney, Peggy McCarthy, spinster of Greenville Store, County Kerry, died at the age of 25. Cause of death, certified eclampsia. Playwright Tony Gairn, himself a retired detective guard inspector, is very clear on what happened to Peggy. When Peggy McCarthy died, this was a more serious crime as I'm concerned, perpetrated by those who prevented her from in- entering the hospitals. As a matter of fact, I would go so far as say there were accessories before the fact to a crime of, I nearly pitch it at murder because of its inevitability. I find it really hard to understand, even in the Ireland of 1946, how a young woman in labour in dire need of a medical treatment could be refused help by two state-funded hospitals, forcing her to travel further afield for help. It's too easy to blame it on the nuns who refuse Peggy entry. Historian Dr Mary McAuliffe puts their actions into context. Yes, the hospitals would have had an ethos, but it would have been very much a Catholic ethos and run along Catholic social policies of the time, which were quite strict. Also, the hospitals would have been funded by the local council, Kerry County Council in this case. So therefore, the funders make the rules. The council and the orders of nuns would have run these hospitals together and there were certain rules and regulations. So women who were pregnant outside of marriage could only be treated in one hospital and that was in Killarney. And this was put in place for, I suppose, the social and moral mores of the day, that women who were pregnant outside of marriage were seen as deviant, as not behaving in a respectable manner and that they were not to be treated in the same wards as those women who were pregnant within marriage. They were seen as, as contaminating bodies and that's why she would have been refused in Listowel and Tralee. So in lots of ways, yes, the nuns refused her treatment, but they did it not because they were cruel women treating another woman very badly. They did it because this was the ethos by which they provided care. And that care had a moral ideology underpinning it. And a moral ideology we look back on today and say that was quite cruel, but it also was the morals of the day. So you have to see that their behaviour actually was quite in keeping with how the hospitals were run at that time. Back to Sunday, February 10, 1946. Peggy gave birth to a baby girl who was baptised Breda. Baby would be raised by Peggy's parents, but for now, John Guerin had one final journey with Peggy to take her mortal remains 
home to her family in Listowel. Ron Bjorn, when she was taken back to Listowel on the roof of my father's car, the coffin up on top of the car, straw bags beneath it and strapped down to find the gates of the church locked against her because she was an unmarried mother. Not only were the gates of Peggy's local church locked against her, but also the chapel door of the local convent. It's clear that a decision had been made by Canon Brennan that Peggy was not welcome in any of the parish's churches, and that Peggy could not be buried in the local graveyard in consecrated ground. In 1946, this was tantamount to locking the gates to heaven to the young mother. Canon Brennan was then 66 years old, no novice. He had up to that point the respect and obedience of his congregation. However, he clearly misjudged his flock by refusing Peggy McCarthy's remains into the church, even though he initially thought he had made the right decision in the eyes of the church. Dr Mary McAuliffe. Unfortunately, at the time, anyone who committed suicide was not allowed a Christian burial within the church. But she hadn't committed suicide. She had died because of uh, not getting proper treatment in time. But, of course, she had gone against the morals of the church at that time. She was a, a woman who had given birth to an illegitimate child. That was seen as a black mark, a sin. And so, I suppose, by his lights, he was acting out of protection of the church so that there would be no occasion of sin. He was wrong not to allow her in. But because he was the representative of the church in the parish and was all-powerful within that context, it was within his rights to actually do that. He could refuse to marry people. The church called people off the altar. They had that power. And so he did that. I suppose he reckoned without the response from the local people. John Gairn, the hackney driver, who'd both driven Peggy to the three hospitals and brought her remains home from Killarney, decided, there and then, enough was enough. Peggy had to be laid out in a house of God. My father came back from Killarney with the body on the roof of the car, in a coffin, of course, and not ex- he wasn't expecting the church to be locked, and a crowd had gathered, they were all expecting the coffin to arrive, and they were all there to pay respects to the family and... The gates were locked, and there was not a disturbance now in the crowd. They weren't pleased with what they saw. Why was this happening? And my father, along with a lot of neighbours, they broke down the gates. of the, the church gates were broken down. They weren't going to tolerate this. They were up in arms. They, my goodness me... Religion was gone out the door. This was one of their own. Forget about God. Forget about everything. You were back to pagan Ireland. This was one of our own. We are performing the ritual. And come hell or high water, that was going to happen. Standing up to the Catholic Church in 1940s Ireland was pretty much unheard of. To defy the authority of the Church in such a public manner could only be perceived as sin. And one that would be severely punished not just by the clergy and those they held sway over, but by God himself. They couldn't care less whether there'd be this threat of hell and damnation. That didn't, didn't count under the circumstances. This was unbelievable what was happening. Never happened any place else, to my knowledge. Other locals looked on, some in awe at what hackney driver John Gairn was doing in breaking down the church gates and standing up against the church in such a public way. Bat O'Keefe's father was one such observer. They thought like Jesus, like, you know, they really were 
uh, thought that this would bring hell and, and fire and damnation down on North Kerry, like, you know, that uh, they thought, like, that this, the Vatican will hear about this, like, you know. As it turns out, the hierarchy didn't seem to get wind of the actions of Canon Brennan's prisoners, and if they did, they took no further action. We have no idea of the conversations that transpired between Canon Brennan, John Gairn and other prisoners. While the character names in the play Solo Run are different, what we're listening to is a fictional recreation of what playwright Tony Gairn believes transpired between Canon Brennan and his father John in relation to Peggy's remains. We have a dead mother, Catholic, local, and she can't get into her own church. I've told you, on my knees I prayed for guidance before I put on that chain. You get out there and put an end to this, this nonsense. Bottom line, that coffin is not getting into my church. I'll tell you what. Now you're preaching to your canon, telling him what to do. You've made your protest. Now tell that, that lot to scatter. Don't fool yourself. Way, way more than a protest this is. Revolt? Label it whatever way you will. But Corrig is making a stand for the Christian burial of an unmarried mother. The way Josie Sullivan lived and died has brought shame and disgrace on her church, her parish, her family. Be gone and take that coffin out of my sight. Be gone and leave my chains alone. Josie Sullivan is going into her own church. Are you deaf? Defy the court and you'll die roaring. Is that your last word then, Josie Sullivan? Last chance, Cannon? On Judgment Day, your actions here this night will see you damned. Damned for all eternity. To hell with you. To hell with everyone here. You're disobeying your canon. To hell. Hell! Whatever went on between Canon Brennan and John Gairn, discussions continued and a resolution was found, eventually. Negotiations took place at that late stage and Peggy McCarthy was taken back to the hospital chapel in Listowel, which annexes the hospital she was refused entranced her, and there she was waked. Peggy was waked throughout the night. The townspeople paid their respects. The mourners were led by Peggy's mother and father, an extended family. However, many of her siblings, having immigrated, were not able to attend. The following morning, as Peggy's newborn daughter was starting her life, her mother's remains were shouldered into an isolated corner of St Michael's Cemetery in Listowel. Peggy was buried in a newly created family plot with Canon Brennan in attendance. Both sides had kept some face. Peggy received a Christian burial, but not a funeral mass, and Canon Brennan never compromised the sanctity of his parish church, St Mary's. In life and in death, Peggy had friends and family to stand up for her, but not everyone had that support, as the stoneman Bat O'Keefe recalled. I thought it was strange that the church had so much power that time that uh, a Christian burial would be refused. But uh, when I put two and two together, then another case happened at that time, around that time. Uh, a boy from the industrial school in Tralee was sent to, out to work in the war and he, only, he was made sleep in the cow shed over the cows. Like, he took off his clothes one night in below the bank of the river and threw himself in. His body was was picked up at the big bridge in the stall. He also was refused a Christian burial. They wouldn't say mass for him, or they wouldn't allow his body be buried in the, in the consecrated ground. Now, more than 70 years later, Father Martin Hegarty, 
a friend of Peggy's family and a retired parish priest of the Kerry Diocese, is able to see what went wrong. It was a great tragedy, but uh, it's a tragedy that should be shared in the sense that um, Canon Brennan at the time, he was a respected canon of the diocese, and uh, he made a wrong decision. There was no need to close the church doors uh, to the remains. The remains could, could have been brought in. As a matter of fact, one of his curates, Father Sayers, objected and said, you cannot do that, Canon. He got, he got nowhere with it. But uh, if blame is to be thrown out, uh, it should be shared between the uh, council who were in charge of the medical matters in Kerry at the time and uh, Canon Brennan, of course, uh, he regretted afterwards and he even apologised afterwards for his decision at the graveside. The townspeople's support for Peggy McCarthy and her family was well outside the norms of 1946, as Dr Mary McAuliffe explains. Yes, it was unusual. It happened occasionally, and I think sometimes people looked for ways to get around the very strict rules of the church. But to actually go up against, face-to-face, a parish priest was unusual, Uh, and particularly unusual in that it wasn't the middle class, it wasn't the business people who went up against them, because, of course, they were all part of that hierarchy of power within a small town. And it was that was the way it was all around the country. You know, the hierarchies of the priest and the doctor and the local business people. But it was her people from her background, you know, small farmers, working class people who went up against the priest um, because the priest governed their lives to a large extent. Um, and I think that took a lot of courage. Um, but they did it and they got her uh, Christian burial. Of course, mostly Irish people went along with the rules and regulations of the church and you see that illegitimacy and unmarried motherhood was very much punished by being put into mother and baby homes or Magdalen laundries. But you also have, if you dig underneath the official histories, you also have stories of children being passed off as the children of the grandparents if, if one of the girls in the household got pregnant. Peggy McCarthy was undoubtedly a victim of a church and state more worried about Catholic mores than the welfare of their people. But possibly the most tragic victim in this story is Breda, the daughter Peggy gave birth to in 1946. The church and state's devastating impact on the McCarthys didn't end with Peggy's death. It carried over into the life of her daughter Breda and right up to the present day. Eileen Roach is a cousin of Breda, Peggy's daughter. Her mom, Maggie, and my dad, Dick, were brother and sister. And when you say her mom, you mean her granny? Oh, yes, I mean her granny. And the reason for that is because she was reared by her gran and her granddad. And they reared her as their own child. And she never knew anymore until latter years. And Brigitte was the youngest of the McCarthy's. That's how we remember her and how we knew her. Breda referred to her grandparents as mom and dad, the only parents she knew. Peggy was seldom spoken about in the house and never within Breda's hearing. Growing up, Breda was the only child in the McCarthy household. She would come to be known as a special child, mainly by those closest to her, including her childhood friend and neighbour, Breda Keane. I've lived here all my life and I went to school with Breda and... In about 1958, Breda moved to live next door to me and we were always good friends. She was good crack, a devil, great fun, 
could play tricks on you. And did she go to school with you? Oh yes, she went to school with us. I think she got on all right. Sister Patricia had great time for her and always looked after her at school. Then we used to walk home from school and she used to go up the Ford Road and I used to come back home. Brida lived a carefree, happy childhood. As she grew into her teens, it became evident that Brida had an intellectual disability. Her cousin, Eileen Roach. And you knew her as a young girl? I did, yeah. I remember her coming into our house in Lishtol, um with her mum and dad in the donkey and cart. They'd be coming into town for the messages. And more often than not, they'd probably drop Brida up to our house because... Breathe, you see, being the youngest, was at that time on her own. Whereas in our house, there was always seven or eight or nine of us at home. We, there was a big family of us there. And she'd play with the younger ones, or us, while her mom and dad were down the town getting the messages. But I have to say this, that in Breathe, there was an innocence. There was an innocence there. She was very childish. Now, to look at her, she had the most beautiful smile. She'd light up the darkest room. But there was that innocence there. Friends and family ponder if what happened to her mother Peggy in 1946 had an impact on Breda's abilities. Breda was born in Killarney. Yeah. So if you think, well, if Peggy was in labour and she was turned away from Blishdoll, turned away from Tralee and had to go to Killarney and all the time she was in labour, you know, we don't know, did it do the little baby? was to come any good, you know what I mean? When I think of that innocence that's in her and that childishness and that, you know, all that kind of thing, like, you know. As you'd expect, after Peggy's death, the McCarthy family had very limited dealings with the church. That is until Peggy's mother, Breda's grandmother, died in 1964 when Breda was an 18-year-old. By this stage, Tony Gairn had left Lestol. I left Lestol about 1960, that we have a, a giant Shikana in Dublin. Naturally, I'd be on the, I'd know all about reading, how she was getting on. But then her grandmother died, Margaret died. So Breda was left with her grandfather only to care for her. As Breda told me herself, the first time she ever saw a priest in their house was when one landed on the door and said she had to be taken into care. This is the point in the story where the devastating intercession of church and state impacted on a third generation of the McCarthy clan. Peggy lost her life due to their actions. Her parents lost their daughter, raising their granddaughter as their own. Now, 18 years after Peggy's death, church and state made another life-changing intervention when another clergyman called to breed his house not long after her grandmother had died. The priest went to the house and uh, as a result of the conversation there, Breda was sent to the laundries. There was no place else to put the girl, no one to look after her. And because Ned, the grandfather was incapable, he couldn't hardly look after himself at this stage. And that's why she ended up in the laundry. For her friend Bryna and cousin Eileen, Breda simply disappeared not just out of their lives, but out of everyone's life. And out of the blues, Breda was gone. No goodbye, no nothing. Nobody knew where she had come to. 
all my grandfather said was the breeder was gone. We all grew up, got on with our own lives, went our own separate ways. And really and truly, I didn't think about breeder because in those days people went away to England, America, and you just didn't meet up. What happened to breeder only became clear years later. Tony Gern. Following the intervention of the cleric, breeder ended up in the laundry in Limerick first. The cleric put her in there, but uh, then she went to the laundries in Dublin and she was shifted from one place to the other. The Magdalen laundries were set up to house what church and state referred to as fallen women, women who had children out of wedlock. They were to be hidden away from society, locked up without ever having committed a crime. Is it possible that Breda was sent there, not because of her own actions, but because of those of her mother Peggy's, who had given birth to Breda outside of wedlock some 18 years earlier in 1946? Whatever the reason, the local clergy had made another decision for the McCarthy family, and Breda entered the Magdalen Laundries in 1964. She remained there until they closed down in the 1990s. At this stage, Breda was institutionalised, incapable of independent living, and she remains in a care home right up to today, August 2018. Her cousin Eileen still wonders why she was ever taken away in the first place. But it's only now I, I often think to myself, I often wonder why did Breda go away? Because knowing my mum and dad and our family, as I did, big family of us there, I, I said, my mum and dad would have taken Breda, no problem. Because back then, one more mouth to feed didn't make a difference, did it? It made no difference because we shared everything we shared, what we had, like, you know. So we don't know what happened that she was sent away. Like, we just don't know. What happened to Breda during those 50 years after she was taken from the stole, aged 18? All we have to go on are the many articulate accounts from women who were kept in the Magdalene laundries during that time. Dr Mary McAuliffe. All the evidence we have from survivors of the Magdalene laundries talk about a very tough uh, regime of work and prayer and silence. So working long hours in the laundry, usually in very unventilated conditions, working morning to night, uh, sleeping in dormitories, no time on your own, no privacy, wearing a uniform. In some of the Magdalene laundries, the women were given uh, numbers or names or saints' names, so you lose your own name. And that's what a lot of these women survivors talk about, that loss of sense of identity and who and what you were and where you came from and the hard work and the bad food and the punishments, you know, if you went against some of the rules and regulations and committed even small infractions, you could be put on bread and water, you could be beaten, your hair could be cut off. The only insight we get into the lifetime that Breda spent in the Magdalene laundries is from a brief conversation with her cousin Eileen. She was Limerick, she mentioned. We don't know where in Limerick, but Limerick. And she said, I didn't like it there. I hated it. She hated it. I hated it. I didn't like it. And she didn't want to talk about it. And when you think about it, you had a mixture in these Magdalene laundries of women with intellectual disabilities, emotional disabilities, older women who had been there for 30, 40, 50 years, some of them very institutionalised. And that mixture meant that somebody like Breda wouldn't have gotten maybe the care she needed 
for her disabilities, maybe the emotional support she needed. And she was being taken out of a family home, remember, where she'd spent the first 18 years of her life in the care of her grandparents and being put into this big community where there were hierarchies, uh, where the nuns governed with a fairly hard regime. For her friend Bryna and cousin Eileen, Breda simply disappeared out of their lives for the next 50 years or so. I was English doll, which I come down every now and again. And my sister Dolores, we were walking up the avenue, O'Connell's Avenue, and we met a neighbour, Maggie Hayes. And Maggie was chatting away and we were talking about this and that. And he said, Eileen, he said, I was up, saw a cousin of yours last week. I said, a cousin of ours? Where? He said, in Dublin. I said, where in Dublin? He said, Breda McCarthy. He said, Breda. And I, I said, Breda, where? He said, she's in home. So it upset me from a point of view because I thought Breda was probably no more, that she, was, she had gone and I didn't know where she was. So I came home and I said to myself, I'll have to go to see her. So I went up to see her and I visit her regularly ever since. Today, Breda, a ward of court, resides in a sister of Our Lady of Charity Care Home for women aged between 60 and 80 years old who have spent a lifetime in care. When I started visiting her in the beginning, she was so delighted. My cousin is here and she's very welcoming. Big smile, love talking about Lestole and the rest of it. And at one stage, Brian and myself went up together. Remember, Brina? Yeah. About that, and when she saw you. We went up in the 2013, I think I yeah. went up with yeah, Eileen yeah. to visit her. And so she was over the moon Delighted. when she saw us. All came from memories, came flooding back. flooding back. Things that I had even forgotten. And she'd keep asking, going up then on the visits, going up and up and up, she'd see there, when are you taking me down to the store? Very innocent, as I said, childish is what I'd say. She brought yeah. her very childish, yeah. very innocent, very lovable, still is. And she kept saying, when are you taking me down to this door? When are you taking me down? In its day, none of this story made it into the public domain. No newspaper coverage, no radio reports, no public inquiries. Breda is now a 72-year-old. She has now spent her entire adult life, 54 years, in institutional care. She will remain in care for the rest of her life. Both Breda and her mother Peggy's stories are scarcely believable. What happened to the McCarthy family changed their lives irrevocably. And what began in 1946 continues to have a real and lasting impact to today. While the intervention of the people of Lestole enabled Peggy to receive a Christian burial, they couldn't save her daughter Breda from the further actions of church and state. The way they were treated, my God, the savagery and the brutality of it. Tony Garn. The cloud will never ever lift from the grave because it was horrendous what happened to the mother. She should never ever be in that, lying in that grave. And Breda should never. She spent her whole life in the laundries, but she spent her life slaving there. And Breda should never ever have had to endure the life she has had. And let no one deny that is what happened. Stories like this will only go away if we forget them. Tony Gairn, in writing the play Solo Run, and Peggy's brother Sean, 
who wrote the song in shame, love and shame in her memory have both endeavoured to ensure that Peggy's harrowing experience will never fade from memory. Hear the nightingale crying in shame, love in shame. On the 23rd of May 2014, Breda's friend Bryna and cousin Eileen fulfilled their promise to Breda, bringing her back to her native Lestore. Exactly 50 years had passed since Breda had been taken from her home and placed for a lifetime in the Magdalen laundries. We brought her up to the cemetery and then we went over to her mom and dad's grave where she wants to come down to be buried in. And we were there, we were saying our prayers and looking at it and reading the names and everything, the names on it, her mom and dad and everything. And at the very end, there was Peggy, who died in 1946. And she turned to me, she was alongside me with the hands around each other, and she turned and she said, uh, my mam and dad, she said, my mam and dad there. But then she turned and she whispered, but Peggy was my real mom, wasn't she? She still says it. Peggy was my real mom.